I'm Betty Salonik, CEO and founder of Accelerate Investors. Welcome to our podcast, Chief Investment Officer Conversations, which brings to you what is on top of mind for the world's leading CIOs. In our conversations, we will explore their background, their current investment strategies, and their global outlook. In this episode, I interview Scott Pittman, Chief Investment Officer of the $2 billion endowment for Mount Sinai, the largest hospital system in New York City. He shares with us what drew him to this role, how his office identifies new investment opportunities, and he describes investments that Mount Sinai has made that he is particularly proud of. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Scott. How are you? Thank you so much for being here. It's good to be here. Thank you. Why don't we begin with you sharing with our audience who you are and what you do? I manage the investment office for Mount Sinai Health System. And I came to Mount Sinai at the very end of 2008, which was an interesting period of time, and arrived in in the month of December and uh, started to set up the office then in the early part of 2009. Great. Given the current time period that we're in, I just want to touch on this a bit. You're the CIO of a a major hospital system, in fact, the largest in New York City. Healthcare, given that we are in a pandemic, is at the forefront. I'm just curious, how has COVID-19 impacted your day-to-day job? That's that's a good and tough question. Um, It's been a lot of different areas. So you know, health, healthcare investment offices are unique in that they support a lot of different functions. And, you know, it's, it's even broader when you look at a big healthcare system. When you look at healthcare, it's not unusual for there to be lots of different areas and different pools of capital. Uh, some of those may be for employee benefits, whether it's DB or DC. Some of those may be for, you know, liquidity needs from a short-term basis, uh, can be also for reinsurance pools. And then there's also where we spend the majority of our time, the strategic long-term capital, which is, you know, much, much of it is, is restricted and it's endowment related and it's supporting medical research, um, and it's supporting important efforts for the institution. You know, so the, the complexities of the different pieces for the institution and, and all of the pools of capital when COVID came along, you know, presented just the, uh, the need to spend time in each of those areas all at once. And, you know, then even more stepping back from that, you know, large healthcare system in the center of, um, you know, a, a scary point in time, uh, especially back in March and April, our office was, you know, engaged in the very basic of needs. And that is how can we use our network to try to, you know, find additional PPE equipment? So, you know, there, there, there were shortages around the country and Sinai was was working overtime uh, to make sure that all of our frontline workers were covered and had what they needed. Uh, and everyone from the chairman of our board to, um, you know, investment office um, employees to other workers within the healthcare system were doing everything they could to use the resources and the people they knew to make sure that that equipment was available. Yeah, you know, and once kind of working through that, you know, it's all the the liquidity needs of the organization and the pool needs of the organization. So yes, uh, the the time has been rather intense uh, since COVID began. Yeah, definitely interesting times to be at a CIO of a hospital system. Before diving further, let's step back for a bit. We'd love to hear more about your background. Where are you from? Your career history and what drew you to Mount Sinai? Okay. Well, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, 
and you know still have family back that direction. Yeah, you know, I, I always had a, a love of science growing up, and uh, had intended and planned initially to uh, to go more of the physician uh, path, and had a couple of mentors who were doctors. And so even like in uh, in college, so I was pre med business. Even in college, had gone through and gotten my EMT certification because I wanted to get additional experience of what that was like. And so I'd, I'd spend you know the week in school and the weekends riding ambulances and you know, you know getting experience in that way. You know, but to kind of long story short, through the mentors I had that were doctors and through also my just um, love of the business side of things. I uh, ended up going uh, actually a direction towards healthcare, but more more healthcare finance. And, you know, within that, you know, kind of began at least uh, my career path. And it's been interesting to see how starting out in healthcare finance, um, you know, being at Sinai now, and I, you know, it's been almost 12 years at Sinai, kind of coming back to a large healthcare institution, but in an investment office role uh, has come full circle. And there were a lot of things kind of in between that. And I think one of the interesting things, uh, within this industry is that everyone's career path looks a little different. It's not just a common path and there's a lot of different backgrounds. And I think that that, that makes investment offices within endowments and foundations, um, you know, much, much more unique in that aspect. In, in my respect, I had gone back to school. I had gotten my master's. I had started doing some PhD work. I was asked, uh, by the chairs of economics and uh, the chair of the finance department at Baylor University if I would stay and consider teaching uh, courses there while I continued in some of my PhD work. Um, and I did that. I did that for um, just over two years and then um, had, had decided I, I love the academic, uh, you know, learning and a very curious personality, but really much wanted to be in the day to day, a little bit more of engagement with uh, the markets itself. And so I had looked to potentially move, you know, from Baylor, from the teaching side into more of an investment firm, but Thankfully, Baylor had just brought their endowment in-house and had hired a new CIO, and it was a new office and a new uh, new chance to kind of build up, um, you know, that within Baylor. And uh, I made the decision to stay there, and so um, I worked within Baylor University's endowment um, for you know about five six years, and then uh, the opportunity for Sinai came along. And you had asked, um, you know, why why Sinai, and you know what what drew me to that. Uh, and there were there were a lot of reasons. One, it was just it was a great opportunity, but I really loved like going back to what I had said more my you know, where I started. I loved healthcare, and and so the opportunity to work within a healthcare system, you know, was one one thing that drew me. The leadership of the institution uh, was very strong. Uh, that's important for any organization, um, especially within healthcare. You know, the investment committee was a big draw. Uh, it, it was a you know very prominent committee. Um, you know, still is a very prominent committee, but a lot of individuals that had had a lot of success. And for me, it was an opportunity to, uh, you know, one, be able to build something new at Sinai. They didn't have an investment office. And at the same time, um, you know, work alongside in partnership with, um, you know, individuals that, that I respected and, and thought highly of. And, you know, and then more specifically, uh, New York City. I, you know, Certainly with what I was already doing, traveling a lot to New York. Um, and I, I like the city and, um, you know, found that to be, you know, something that was compelling, uh, within the move to Sinai. Uh, as a fellow Texan who also moved to New York, I must agree with you about New York <laughs> City. <laughs> Before diving more into your, the Mount Sinai portfolio, I did also read in your bio that you're on the investment council for TIA Nuveen. 
I'm curious, what does that role entail? Uh, sure. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, the investment council really serves to be a sounding board, uh, for TIA Naveen. You know, it, it's one of helping to identify what are your know, critical topics among institutional investors. What are uh, areas of focus that are important for us? And, you know, being able to provide feedback in those areas. And, you know, likewise, uh, for the council, it's, it's a way for us to better understand uh, the TIA Nuveen's platform and what opportunities and the ways they serve their clients. So I, I've served in that role now for about two years, and uh, it's been a great experience. You alluded to this earlier. Tell us a bit about the different pools of capital that you manage and perhaps the different strategies that you employ or the amount of time you spend on them. Just want to hear more. Sure. The uh, the items I alluded to earlier, we, we actually uh, have a little bit of everything um, at Mount Sinai. You know, we, we spend the majority of our time, you know, when I say we, the investment office at Mount Sinai, on this strategic long-term pool of capital. And you know, this strategic long-term pool of capital acts very much like uh, an endowment. In fact, most of the capital is restricted. Uh, and again, it's, you know, the institution's been around since the 1850s. And over that period of time, thankfully, there have been you know, donors that have helped support uh, the mission of Mount Sinai, and more specifically, supporting the research and you know, the physicians at Sinai in a way where there are endowed you know, accounts that help support from a spin side these initiatives. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to be actually in a position where the efforts of the investment office are going to hopefully drive returns that then, you know, help support more specifically the direct mission of the institution and the research going on within the institution. So that, that is really the primary focus of the investment office. But then, you know, there's a, there's a lot of other capital outside of that where our office uh, serves in really different roles and different capacities. So I also serve as the investment committee chairman for two other organizations um, that are, you know, tied to Mount Sinai, but there are other, other entities that are involved with these organizations. And in, in both these cases, one is a uh, health insurance, um, another is a reinsurance. And then I also serve on the subcommittee for our benefits committee. And, you know, we, we help there to support the needs um, from the benefit side as it relates to employees, DB or DC. So, yeah, there, there, there are a lot of different areas in even in the short term liquidity needs of the institution to the extent, you know, there are funds there that aren't really intended for long term use. And there's some additional liquidity, you know, they will look to the investment office to help support, you know, how to manage those assets. So there, there's a lot of different hats at different points in time for the investment office. You know, 24-7 is the strategic long-term pool. All the other pools, we interact with uh, different parties and other organizations in helping to advise and or manage on those assets. And in some of those roles, we're a little bit more direct in our um, attempt. And in others, it's it's much more of a supporting um, role, but they all take time. And, you know, kind of going back to earlier, COVID kind of uh, forced uh, the time needs for all of them all at once. So it's a little harder to manage, uh, but that's okay. And so, you know, worked through most of that and in good shape today. Thank you. What is your process for identifying new investment opportunities to add to your portfolio? You know, going back to uh, one of the things I just commented on with uh, the opportunity set, it, it really does start with uh, you know, an understanding of where we think we are within a market cycle. And you know, the end of 2019 was a perfect example. No one was an anticipating COVID in uh, 2020, 
or at least very few people maybe were anticipating COVID in 2020. You know, but certainly people weren't on the endowment and foundation side constructing their portfolios um, for COVID at the end of 2019. It was a, it was an environment where we had been in a bull market for a very long period of time. There was nothing to say why the market should you know end abruptly, but you know it was probably at least um, you know easy to say it's a later cycle environment. And and so in a later cycle environment, you know there are certain things that from an opportunity set perspective are more interesting and things that are less interesting. You know, and you know, that is true both from a geographic allocation uh, in terms of certain countries and markets and how they had behaved during the market cycle. It's true of a strategy perspective, you know, mergers and acquisitions, um, you know, merger arb, a strategy later in a cycle that you know, where there's uh, you know, more deal flow is more interesting when when you look at what COVID has done, not to say that there's not going to still be, you know, mergers and acquisitions taking place, but there are, you know, probably other areas and other strategies um, that, you know, come up that are a little bit more interesting at this point in time. So, you know, looking at our portfolio at the end of 2019, that was really positioned for a certain type of market and a certain type of opportunity set. You know, looking at our portfolio in March and April, uh, we were really trying to think how COVID was impacting um, you know, the strategies that we were in, it was going to impact, uh, the opportunity set in the next few years. You know, what factors, you know, such as a low interest rate environment for a very, very extended period of time, you know, things like that coming out of COVID, how do those factors influence, um, opportunities? And so it, it really starts with understanding where the opportunity set is today. And then it moves to what we own and, you know, re-underwriting again, kind of going back to that, what we own and is it best positioned within this opportunity set? And and then within that, there's a constant monitoring of the investment office. And one, one of the things that's helpful with having a more concentrated portfolio is is hopefully uh, you have a, you have a uh, even better understanding of what you own and within that, um, how those partnerships that you're working with, how they're thinking about the world, how they're allocating and how you're positioned so it's more of a forward-looking um, perspective. When when you have fewer positions, it, it helps to kind of have that uh, that that perspective a, a little easier than it might with a with a portfolio that is you know 100 plus manager partnerships versus you know 35 to 40 manager partnerships. So you know the monitoring that's going on you know helps us at least to understand how our managers are thinking about the world and how they're. Uh, positioning their portfolios uh, for the opportunity set. And if we believe that changes need to be made, um, you know, we, we can adjust accordingly. Yeah, I think the other part of this that goes into how we identify new investments and just kind of the, the you know, bigger picture perspective on this is every person in our investment office is responsible for, at the same time, monitoring their primary responsibilities and kind of casting the net to figure out what are new opportunities that are out there that are important. And you know, this is why I think from a staffing perspective, it's important to have you know, the right number of uh, employees for kind of these partnerships and the investments that you own, because you need to be able to have balance in that bandwidth to be able to understand what you own and to be able to identify new opportunities. So everyone in the investment office is individually uh, taking meetings, having the opportunity to pursue what they think is interesting and if they if they have a meeting that they find is compelling, 
kind of the next step within that is they bring in someone else within the investment office. And so meeting number two is with two people and not one person. And if those two individuals then find that as interesting, um, they bring it to the team and the team has a meeting, kind of meeting three. And then, you know, if the team finds it interesting and there's not really a fit or place in the portfolio, we just try to maintain that relationship and that dialogue um, so that if the fit and place becomes available, um, you know, we can revisit that. But you know, that there's kind of this dual process of trying to make sure, one, that we're just broadly identifying new opportunities that are interesting. And so, you know, the team is structured to do that. And then the other side is, you know, understanding what we own relative to the opportunity set and making sure that we kind of adapt and evolve the portfolio accordingly. How are you thinking about maybe being more concerted in finding underrepresented managers, Black and Latino, to, you know, add to your portfolio? That's, it's a, it's a hard question. It's a tough question. I say the best way in what we're doing, um, it's really relationships with third parties. And, and so, you know, for, first of all, you know, we are taking meetings with underrepresented, uh, groups. We have, in fact, one tomorrow with the uh, introduction that came through another endowment taking place. So it's, it's hard from the standpoint of, you know, it, endowments and foundations, there's, there's not, there's not like a list that is sitting out there for endowments and foundations to go to. So I think it's on us, one, as peers to, you know, bring these to each other, which in the case of tomorrow's meeting, um, is the case. I think to the relationships with prime brokers and third party marketers that have these relationships as they bring these opportunities to us, you know, making sure that we take extra time. Yeah, you know, because time management for us is, is is the biggest constraint, and you know we tend to say no very very often, and so it's very easy. It, it, it's very easy just to say, well, this is not an area that we're looking at right now, and so we we don't have the time to you know take this meeting, and you know we'll say no before we have an understanding of you know the the background of the firm to begin with. You know if the strategy is not fitting with our area of focus. Um, but I think in, in these cases, you've got to give, again, going back to the aspect of proactive, you've got to make time, you've got to give more time. Um, because even if it's not a strategy we're looking at, you know, the reality is, you know, as you're talking to another peer, they may be. And then if you've had that meeting, you can say, well, you know, I had this conversation, we can't move forward on it, but it was really interesting. And let me make an introduction and maybe it works for you. Um, you know, so, to identify the meetings, I think is just one of, you know, growing the network over time. You know, that network, you know, going back to the third party marketers and other endowments and foundations, you know, providing those introductions. And I'll make a plug for my organization, Accelerate Investors. <laughs> Please. We try to highlight underrepresented managers, Black and Latino, and um, connect them with investors like yourself. And, and to that end, I mean, that's the reason that, you know, I'll say, I am, but Mount Sinai is continuing to want to engage uh, with an organization like the one <laughs> you're directing is for that very purpose. I think it's important for us to take the time, um, make the time to help support those efforts. So yes, it's good. Yes. And we look forward to having you at Mount Sinai more involved in for now our virtual webinars, but hopefully post-COVID in our in-person events. You and I've had this conversation already, but, and you alluded to understanding what's in your portfolio, but also what about knowing who your investment managers are and who 
their people are, who they employ. Uh, we It is July 2020, and it, we've been not only in a pandemic, but also in a period where there is more discussion on r- racial justice. And unfortunately, investment management is a, a place where not a lot of historically underrepresented people, Blacks and Latinos, are represented in um, investment management. And I know you, you and I have had discussed this a little bit, but tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about maybe advocating, promoting that your investment managers also hire underrepresented people and not only just hire, but promote, retain. No, it's, it's an excellent, um, you know, question and obviously very relevant today and, and, you know, has been relevant. Uh, yes. So yeah, the first thing I'll start by saying is, and, and, and this isn't going to be shocking or surprising, but I think it's important and it's not to be overlooked. Investors need to be having these conversations with their managers. Managers are very busy. And they have a lot to distract them. And, you know, hearing a conversation or two from an investor about this may not quite get the attention. You know, hearing, you know, 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 conversations from their investors about this you know, that does get their attention. You know, so I, I don't want to gloss over the impact that any individual investor can have just by just having this conversation with their managers, because the more these conversations occur, um, you know, I think the more, you know, the investment uh, management universe realizes the importance of, um, you know, really taking it seriously, not that they don't, but what I'd say is moving more proactively to finding ways to help solve for this, to help, you know, fix this, you know, because there's, there's a certain element of awareness, which is good, but, you know, what is better is much more the proactive steps taken to help kind of solve them for the aspects of inequality that are there. So, yes, I'd say on our part, you know, if I, if I look back, you know, five, seven years ago, you know, how frequently were we having these conversations? versus, you know, where we are today and having these conversations, there's a, there's a big change with us. And in just one, you know, certainly our awareness has always been there, uh, but us being more proactive in having these conversations. And you know, this honestly also broadens, you know, even outside of aspects of racism and inequality, you know, just in, in terms of, um, you know, management's general behavior, sexual harassment policy. A couple of years ago, you know, this this obviously was even much more highlighted, and it doesn't need to be forgotten. And, and so we've incorporated even within our operational due diligence, um, which we revisit. We don't just do once; we revisit with managers over time. Changes within our due diligence that address aspects like this to bring up these conversations to drive home you know, these these points. Thank you. That's great. I think you know there's definitely a lot in terms of policy and just how agreements are written down that can be changed that can help. I'm curious, what is an investment that your office has made that you're particularly proud of? Hmm. If I think to things that I'd say are a little bit, you know, di- it doesn't have to be different to be proud of, but you know, th- you know, different sometimes it stands out for various purposes. So you know, there, there's an investment that we've we've been in now for several years and it's one that deals with basically uh, refurbishment of older multifamily. And, and so, you know, the reason we're proud of this one, one, 
it's not a typical GPLP structure. Uh, we're actually alongside the GP, so this is not a typical fund structure. Uh, so it involved uh, um, some different diligence, some you know different aspects of uh, the legal structuring, but you know that's one reason. Just because I you know, I think most of the investments that endowments and foundations have are through you know partnerships as an LP GP relationship, and this is really one of you know partner GP. The other is the strategy itself. I, I think was timely, and we've we've been in this now for about six years plus. But it's you know taking these older properties and suburban areas that are growing, and you, you had this trend for a while going back where there was an urbanization and moving more into the cities and that taking place, uh, and you had uh, kind of the the product of uh, the multifamily in the suburban area that was a little bit left behind. And there wasn't really what I'd call just kind of middle of the road solid quality. It was either new and priced really high and a little bit more urban, or it was older and outdated. And, and, and so the, the availability of kind of what I call middle ground, uh, for kind of the, the typical person, um, was, was challenged to find. You couldn't afford the new build and you kind of would pay a little bit more just to be in something nicer. Um, that had had uh, a little bit more time spent to it. So this partnership, I think, was um, you know well constructed, well timed, and has you know worked out from a return standpoint very well. And if I think back longer term to a little bit over you know the last twelve years, you know the last financial crisis provided a lot of opportunities, and you know we did a lot of work around credit, which led us to some very uh, targeted opportunities in structured credit, which led us to even more targeted opportunities in truck CDOs. Um, you know, so our, our work through credit back in 2010 and 2011 is something that, uh, you know, I, I believe our office has, um, you know, done well on. And then uh, the Asia partnerships we have, you know, I think that we've over the years been very cautious about, um, you know, forming new relationships, uh, especially outside the U.S., just as it's harder to monitor. And, um, within that, though, we have found some, uh, what we believe is very high quality partnerships that we continue to highly, highly value today. And so I'm just proud of the, the time, the patience, and you know, those partnerships that exist there. Thank you for listening to part one of my interview with Scott Pittman. Stay tuned for part two. I'm Betty Salonique, founder and CEO of Accelerate Investors, and you've been listening to CIO Conversations. You can follow Accelerate Investors on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thank you for listening.